Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. My, my wife's brother was uh, uh, being uh, captured by Taliban and they, they killed him uh, uh, a couple of weeks ago. Taliban are the same people that back in the days and everybody knows them. And for me, there is no hope because... They killed my family members, and, and, and they are still doing it. They're still trading us. All right. This is so hard. Um, you know, you just see what's going on in Afghanistan. Aaron O'Toole is the leader of the Conservative Party of Canada. As the federal election campaign heads into the final three weeks, we're going to talk to the Conservative Party leader, who is, according to polling, gaining on uh, Justin Trudeau. And uh, the word that I see a lot in the polling information is volatile. How are you, Mr. O'Toole? How are you confident? I'm feeling good, Roy, but I'll have to tell you, I heard James Akam on there talking about not having any hope, and it's it's heartbreaking, the situation in Afghanistan. And I want to thank you and Joe Warmington and a number of veterans who advocated for James Akam years ago, as I did. Um, and it's so sad to think Mr. Trudeau had time to act to do our part, and he didn't. And so this is just yet another example of why we need a change in Ottawa. Well, we talked about this before. 2017, you sent a letter to his then-immigration minister asking for Mr. Husson to intercede to bring an interpreter to Canada, and Mr. Husson's reply to you essentially was, as I recall, let him do the paperwork or let him eat cake. It, it amounted to that, and I brought it to the minister directly, and there was a sense of urgency because at that point the the life was at risk immediately, and there wasn't even a quick response. It was uh, just bureaucratic, no real passion to act, and it's 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 so tragic because we had months, if not several years, to make sure that we got people out that were going to be at risk from the Taliban because right. they helped Canada, and we don't leave people behind. No, we don't. Shouldn't. Um, let's get into the election campaign and I have a bunch of questions for you. So I'll ask you to just not give me sound up soundbite answers, but just keep an eye on the clock and I will do the same. Uh, last night or yesterday, Mr. Trudeau canceled in a campaign event in Ontario because of uh, a crowd that was out of hand and, uh, unruly. There've been all sorts of adjectives used. You've reacted to that. What do you say to that? I, I don't. Um, tolerate or accept people that uh, harass, intimidate, use obscenities. That's not Canadian. That's not the way we debate in our democracy. In, in this campaign, as you know, Roy, we put out a plan on day two. We're running on Canada's recovery plan, our plan for the future. I respect the other people I'm running against, but I don't think they have a plan to get the country back on track. But there's never an excuse for intimidation, harassment, we're a democracy. We're we're a country that we need to have informed and respectful debates about the future of this country, and that's what I expect from from my team. And that's how we've been running a positive campaign from day one, despite the fact that I don't think we should be in a campaign. That was Mr. Trudeau's decision, despite the situation in Afghanistan, the fourth wave, and the forest fires in BC. He called it right. So we're putting forward a positive alternative to a tired and corrupt Liberal government. Mr. O'Toole, the number one issue for Canadians, as shown by Global News, is health care. No surprise at this time. 
The Conservatives, the Liberals, the New Democrats are promising investment in Canadians' health. What I don't hear, though, is from any party acknowledgement that millions of Canadians are without a family doctor. So the health care delivery system is compromised for those Canadians at the very beginning. So what will you set? What, what, what will set you and the Conservative Party ahead of the Liberals, the NDP, on stewarding health care at the national level? Well, this is an area where we have provided a very serious plan. And as I said, right from the start, we're going to lock in the largest in a generation investment in healthcare in Canada, minimum of 6% increase per year, minimum. If we have better economic results, it'll be even more. And that will allow the provinces to have a predictable stream of funding to make the improvements needed post-COVID, to give some relief, to have those family doctors you're talking about, Roy. The provinces have been asking for predictable increasing long-term funding and not Ottawa interfering or, or setting a number of conditions on it because the provinces need, know what they need to act on. So ours represents the largest investment in a generation for our public universal system. Um, okay, so then we go on, and you mentioned this. So can you give me, I'll ask you for a soundbite, because people will be looking for soundbites on this issue. It's huge to you. You want Canadians to understand what it's about. What's the Canada Recovery Plan about at its most fundamental? It's about getting the country back on its feet after COVID. This year and a half, for everyone, Roy, you've been following the issues. Heartbreaking for for small businesses in distress, people that have lost jobs, people that have lost family members. The mental health strain, that's why the third pillar is, is mental health for us, has been incredible. So we need a plan to get the country back on track and Five simple pillars, a million jobs in a year, accountability measures to clean up the sort of ethical mess in, in Ottawa, national leadership on mental health, being secure in the future for domestic vaccines, other critical tools. And the fifth pillar is balancing the budget over the course of the next decade to make sure we don't bankrupt our kids. The, these are the pillars we're running on, and we want to give people a break because the housing crisis, the cost of living crisis is atrocious. So we have a number of measures to get prices down give people relief, starting with our GST holiday in December that actually targets help to bricks and mortar retailers. We've got a lot of smart, positive policies to get people working Mm. and get the country back on track. We now know that budgets don't balance themselves. I think that's been established regardless of what might have been said by someone at some time. They they don't balance themselves. But Ed, what's what's the number one, what's the most fundamental uh, approach you would take to balancing the federal budget? Well, the first thing is we have to get the country working. So we said a million jobs in one year, Roy, because that's essentially what we've lost through COVID. And before COVID, remember the illegal rail blockades and and investment fleeing out of Canada because it didn't seem like we could even have the trains run on time. Mr. Trudeau has sent a signal that nothing can get built in Canada. There's no need to invest in Canada. We want to get people working in all sectors and in all regions of the country that will help us grow and, and remove the support programs and, and get spending under control. But it will also heal some of the unity and division. Mr. Trudeau, his approach on energy, his approach on natural resources, on trade negotiations, his approach on China has also caused intense divisions, especially in Western Canada. Getting people back to work helps us balance the budget, but it will also help heal the country after six years of, of division. Okay. Now, you mentioned China. I'm tomorrow going to be speaking with uh, Vina Najibullah on this program. The wife, as you know, of Michael Kovrig, who with Michael Spavor, 
is approaching a thousand days of hostage imprisonment. That'll be the seventh, fifth of September in China. We're a G seven nation. We have influence. If you become prime minister, what will you do that differs from what Mr. Trudeau's approach has been toward our two Michaels? And isn't this a case which should see political parties work pragmatically alongside each other with the common goal of freeing Michaels, Korig, and Spavor? I agree one hundred percent, Roy. I think a lot about the families of the two Michaels. And, and just the ho- horror of a thousand days knowing their loved one is in prison in China under her- terrible conditions because they're being used as a diplomatic ploy by communist China. So you talked about what we can do at the G7, the, the five eyes, we're a NATO country. Canada has tremendous influence when we leverage it, when we're respected as a trusted ally. But of our closest allies, Roy, we're the only ones that haven't made the decision on Huawei in our 5G. Mr. Trudeau was currying favor with with China, approving takeovers by companies, and the U.S., our closest allies, all looked at us as being out of step. We have to get in line with our approach to stand up for our values and our interests. And I think our, a stronger, more principled approach will actually cause a, a better reaction from communist China, because they, they certainly do not respect the weak approach of Mr. Mr. Trudeau. Mm-hmm. So using Magnitsky sanctions, working with our allies to apply pressure. I, I served in the military. I worked on international business. This will be about making sure a serious Canada is on the world scene again. Well, clearly China doesn't like you very much, at least according to the ambassador, what he had to say the other day. Uh, COVID, uh, the fourth wave and the Delta variant, where do you stand on mandating vaccination requiring of vaccine passports, and making available booster shots for COVID. Seems to be working in Israel. Where do you stand on that? Well, as you know, over a year, we've been fighting for a faster and more reliable access to vaccines. I think vaccines are the most important tool to fight COVID. They're safe, effective. You know, my wife and I publicized our vaccination process to try and show people that they need to get vaccinated. It is a personal decision, and we will respect those decisions. And that's why we also want to see daily rapid testing, masking, other measures to make sure that some people that aren't vaccinated can be kept safe and we reduce the spread. The very fact that we're in a fourth wave election and Mr. Trudeau is playing politics within an election he made the decision to call just shows his approach. So I'll I'll respect what the provinces want to do about keeping uh, spread of, of the fourth wave down in BC and in, in Quebec, in Alberta and Ontario. They have to balance off the health measures and keeping the economy moving. I will partner with provinces. I won't pick fights. And on the health side, as I said, we're going to make record investments to give them predictable funding. And I will build up capacity for domestic vaccines and other critical tools so that we're never again, Roy, caught unprepared as we have been throughout this crisis. One more question for you. I mean, I have a hundred more questions, but we have limited time. So (laughs) so one more question for you. You've mentioned Mr. Trudeau quite a bit in this this interview. You haven't mentioned Mr. Singh much. He earlier this year, Mr. Singh, declared that he would not work with the Conservative Party if you were to form a minority government. Now, on several occasions this past week, Mr. Singh, who I think will be on this program next weekend, has been asked that same question. Would he work with you? And each time he's declined to answer directly. Have you had any conversations of any kind with the NDP leader about about this issue? Or have your parties talked about working together? No, we haven't, Roy. But I think part of the benefit of me putting out a very detailed plan, literally on the first full day of the campaign, day two, the Canada Recovery Plan, 
I put very clearly what I want to do. I want to get people back to work. I, I've been reaching out to, to union leaders. We've been talking about protecting pensioners. We've been talking about giving workers a seat at the table at federally regulated businesses like the banks and telcos. Um, we've been standing up for working Canadians. And, and maybe that's part of it. I, I'm running on a plan to get the country back on its feet, get us get it to work and make sure we learn the lessons of this pandemic and don't repeat them. And uh, perhaps that, that might be something that they're looking at. I can't speak to their campaign, Roy. I can just speak to Canada's recovery plan. And I'll tell you, our, our candidates from coast to coast, I'm in Prince Edward Island now, we have incredible men and women stepping up for us yeah. are concerned about the future of the country. And we have a plan to, to get it back back on track. All right. Well, I hear you saying, I think, that if you form a minority government, that you would be willing to work with Mr. Singh, I guess, depending on the situation. We're joined by uh, Chris Alexander, former Canadian ambassador to Afghanistan. He's also the former federal immigration minister in the government of Stephen Harper. And uh, Ambassador Alexander has been very active, uh, along with his wife, on the issue of Afghanistan and the people that they know and they know need to get out of that country save, literally, save their lives. Ambassador Alexander, good to talk to you. How are you? I'm well, thank you. It's been a tough few weeks, though, as you uh, have been correctly noting. It's not, not just for me, but for millions of people caught up in this. It is so difficult. The stories that we're hearing, there are times, Ambassador, where I hear something and mm -hmm. I wonder, should I actually talk about this on the air? Is anything served by my detailing what happens? But we'll come to that bridge when we're crossing the cliche, you know, when we get to it. Uh, you, what's your view of the last months and weeks and days in Afghanistan? Well, I, I'm torn, uh, really torn. And I think <clears throat> my wife, too, and, and those who are closest to us, Afghan friends and others who worked with us in Afghanistan, torn between the, the absolute uh, visceral need to do something now. Uh, and we've had, you know, we've been in that mode for weeks now to help people that we know are really facing threats. I mean, it's not just that life has changed under the Taliban. Uh, it's that these people, whatever they may be saying publicly, are going door to door looking to settle accounts. And by settling accounts, I mean looking to lock up torture and in many cases eliminate, kill in cold blood the people that are priorities for their revenge. Uh, so we ha all have a visceral uh, need, human need, to help those in most danger. And it's been quite moving to see these networks of people appear uh, and do quite amazing things, things that seemed impossible, but it hasn't been enough. A and then the other side that's tearing at us is the need to talk about the much bigger issue, which is the fate of the people 35, 40 million Afghans who will be in their country whenever this airlift ends, whether it takes 100,000, 200,000, 300,000, uh, whether, you know, half a million, a million people move as refugees, the most Afghans are still going to be living in this new darkness. Uh, and we need to respond to that larger issue as well. It means humanitarian needs, but it also means uh, meeting, you know, basic needs, but it also means... Uh, charting a political path that ensures the world responds uh, effectively and, and doesn't let this get any worse. 
Yeah. I, I read a piece that you wrote. Uh, the headline is Preventing Invasions, Seven Lessons After the Fall of Kabul. Uh, and you have very strong views about Pakistan's role in what's going on in Afghanistan. And you challenge Pakistan on engineering and carrying out a proxy war in Afghanistan and, in fact, using the Taliban to uh, further their own, there being Pakistan's objectives. Can you speak to us about that? Yeah, I, I think this is the untold story. And when I talk about charting the political path, this is really what I'm thinking about and I hope more and more pe people are thinking about. When 9-11 happened and our troops went and stayed for so long, it wasn't actually a new uh, conflict that had erupted because we came to Afghanistan. We were joining a conflict that had been going on since the 1970s as the Pakistani army made it their central doctrine, their central strategic objective in their region to dominate Af Afghanistan and after the breakup of the Soviet Union uh, to extend their influence into Central Asia. And they called this doctrine strategic depth. They pursued it with ten year, for 10 years with in partnership with the United States from 79 to 89 when, uh, as you know, the Soviet Union was occupying Afghanistan. And that has made a lot of Americans nostalgic about Pakistan as an ally, uh, willing to look the other way when uh, there have been accusations about Pakistan's role. Uh, but the U.S. left that uh, war in 1989. And ever since, Pakistan has been continuing to interfere in Afghanistan uh, using different groups, Al-Qaeda, the Taliban, um, the Pakistani version of the Taliban called TTP, and then more recently the Islamic State uh, of Khorasan, which is said to be based in Afghanistan, uh, to regain power in Afghanistan. And they lost, they had it for five years when the Taliban were in power, they lost it. We failed in our strategy as international community to take full account of how much they wanted it back. And I think for them, Ray, Roy, the, uh, the, the key moment was that agreement the Trump administration struck in 2020 with the Taliban. Uh, U.S. agreement with the Taliban, the Afghan government was left out. The deadline for U.S. troops to leave was the end of April of this year. And the Pakistani army, as, as I now see it in retrospect, went to work putting in place a plan for an invasion that would start right about the end of April or the beginning of May. Uh, and their top general went to Kabul on May the 10th. And now, as the reporting shows, uh, the, the major Taliban military offensive started the next day, May the 11th. And it went like clockwork and Kabul fell on August the 15th. So this is not a bunch of terrorist groups with chips on their shoulders or... Uh, an Islamist agenda that they learned in mosques. This is a carefully orchestrated state campaign to invade another state. And, and we should be taking that more seriously because, you know, the rules of the game, borders, sovereignty, non-interference matter a great deal. When Putin invaded Ukraine, he was sanctioned, uh, he and his team, That's right. very severely to yeah. the point where that invasion stopped. Yeah. We haven't done anything like that with Pakistan. And in my view, it's a double standard. We should start uh, standing up for for the sovereignty of countries everywhere and against any country that dares to invade. It's a threat to international peace and security. 
Ambassador Alexander, what is your assessment of uh, the the work that has been done by the current federal government on the Afghanistan issue? You were not only the ambassador to Afghanistan, but you were also the federal immigration minister. How do you assess uh, this government's performance? Well, I think there are three points to make. First, uh, the the stated objective of bringing 20,000 Afghans as refugees to Canada, victims of this turn of events, quickly uh, was welcome. And it's unprecedented. I don't think any other country made that commitment. But as soon as we made it, we failed to implement it. Uh, And I think this chasm between promises and action between expectations and delivery is is really killing us. Uh, We have underperformed. uh, We have micromanaged, as Andrew Leslie says. Uh, We were among the earlier countries to take our own Canadians off the ground uh, at Kabul airport. Uh, And that makes us blind and unable to do more. Moreover, we are the only country Uh, that has called an election, not an election that had to be held, not an election that was required by law, an unnecessary election, a a frivolous election, uh, was called on the very day that Kabul fell. And and looking back, uh, I I, I think it's an insult to the Canadians that served over 20 years and, and to our friends and allies. We should be more focused on this crisis. It deserves that. Okay, we have one minute left, uh, Ambassador. Major uh, General Jeffrey Schlosser, the commanding officer of the 101st U.S. Airborne Division in Afghanistan, who will be back on the program with us tomorrow, told us last time he was on, some weeks ago, that we will, in the not-too-distant future, be revisiting the kind of terror campaigns which preceded and ultimately led to 9-11. What do you think? I think he's right. I know Jeff, I know how well, I know the 101st very well from their multiple tours. Uh, These people who served with me, with Andrew Leslie, see the threat we're facing clearly. It's not just the Islamic State or a few elements of the Taliban. It's a hybrid war quarterbacked by Pakistan's intelligence service that has global jihad as on its agenda. Uh, and, you know, I, my heart breaks when I hear people saying we have to work with the Taliban against the Islamic State. They have the same source. And we've got to start looking at this challenge in a more strategic way. Uh, and I think Jeff Slosser and, and others in Washington uh, and in the United States are probably not too happy with what this administration or the previous administration were doing. We need people in Congress and the Canadian Parliament and elsewhere to start talking, speaking the truth on these issues, getting strategy right. It doesn't have to involve more troops, but it has to involve better policies to prevent the kind of nightmare scenario that he was outlining to you. I I was looking at a story uh, earlier in the week that had to do with COVID long haulers, or now it's called, uh, and I think it's a better name, long COVID. And months after recovering from an actual COVID infection, I'm sure you've heard this story. You've heard one of our our guests now on this program in the past. Months after recovering from an actual COVID infection, significant numbers of patients continue to experience real and COVID-related health challenges. And it's not only adults, as I found out. Susie Golding is a COVID 
a long hauler or long COVID patient. She's published Canada's largest pan-Canadian long COVID impact study and is co-author of nine CIHR research studies and started a Canadian branch of Global Long COVID Kids Organizations. You can find it on... Um, where, where can you find it, Susie? You can find it on Facebook at Long COVID Kids Canada or at longcovidkids.org. God, I'm glad you were there. I would have been <laughs> floundering. <laughs> How, it's been a long time since we talked. How are you? Hey, I'm, I'm good. Not bad, thanks. How are you doing? I'm doing well. See, it's still part of your life, isn't it? It sure is. Yeah, it's uh, really dictates how I roll these days. Yeah. Um, from my daily uh, duties as a as a mom to how I go about my day and figuring out my, you know, a lot of output of energy for, for my working day. Right. We'll I'll ask you about that in just a moment. Say hello to our other guests, Jen and Ruby. Jen is the mom. Ruby is a, her 11-year-old daughter. Jen, how are you? I'm doing well. I don't know why I ask you that. You're both dealing with uh, with long COVID. So I jump in and ask you the usually stupid question, how are you? Uh, and, and, and when we're talking about a condition that you're dealing with, Ruby... Nice to talk to you. Hi, Ruby. Hi. It's good to talk to you. How are you feeling? Good. Good. Well, we're going to talk about what uh, what COVID has done to you because you and your mom and I understand your brother and your dad all uh, dealt with COVID, as did Susie Golding. Susie, Susie, tell us, please. And we've had the discussions on the air. We've had discussions with doctors, with you, and we know more now than we did when we first started. But what is long COVID? And and do we know who is more susceptible to long COVID among Canadians who contracted the coronavirus? Right. Well, long COVID or long haul COVID, or as public health is now referring to it as post-COVID condition, is a condition of uh, after the acute stage of having the virus. So for people... Uh, most people will get better within two to three weeks, but long COVID uh, sufferers go on to have symptoms far beyond 12 weeks. And so anything beyond that mark, you'll be referred to as a long hauler suffering from long COVID. Um, and they're finding that there is no um, particular demographics of people who will suffer this and that there's not a really big understanding of why people get long COVID and it's not necessarily due to having any kinds of pre-existing conditions. So the young get it, the old get it, the healthy, um, athletic, all types. So it's just, it's a hit or miss whether you're going to get it. That's why it's very, um, very important to stay with the social, uh, with the uh, public mandates of mask wearing and social distancing just to protect yourself. Cause even actually there's a huge study done and even 20% of people with asymptomatic cases went on to have long COVID too. So you can have an initial bout of COVID or not. And then later down the road, you'll start ex having uh, long COVID um, symptoms without even having any symptoms to begin with. Yeah. So can you share with us, please, what some of the more, I don't know if the word is common, but some of the more uh, encountered symptoms are. Uh, the define uh, post-COVID condition or long COVID. What what did people experience? What did you experience? Well, there's over 200 symptoms. So wow. <laughs> I had about 40 of them. Yeah, there's there's over 200 symptoms. The thing is with long COVID is it 
it it stretches across every uh, system in the body. So it, it can be it can show up as almost any uh, symptom at all. There's fever, fatigue, headaches, sore throat, diarrhea, nausea, um, joint muscle and pain, dizziness, rashes, chronic hives, mood changes, um, chest pain, insomnia, hallucinations, hair loss, tachycardia, temperature dysregulation. People are suffering from chronic illnesses such as postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome. Um, and mast cell activation, um, myalgic encephalomyelitis, chronic fatigue syndrome. So it, it really is a very broad range of spectrum of symptoms. And, and you never know, as you said, you never know who the person is going to be who's going to contract uh, long COVID. What, uh, what most surprised you, and you published again Canada's lar- largest long COVID impact study, what surprised you most about what you found out? Uh, it's predominantly um, over 60% of the, the people with long COVID are, are women. And so this could have, you know, terrible consequences to the socio-economical system, um, as well as, as I told you, that, uh, you know, 20% of them are, are asymptomatic. Um, and, you know, this they're now thinking that this is a brain-based disease. So... Uh, you know, I think one of the surprising things that it was mostly um, the dominant uh, was female-based. Mm-hmm. Now, doctors initially doubted uh, many long COVID patients, doubted that it actually existed, thought it was um, temporary, uh, um, just a result of having dealt with COVID, and that it would just fade away. There was a, there was a lot of questions. We talked and about that still on the are. program. Yeah, there still are, and Roy, there's there still are a lot of the medical community. Um, public health only updated their website to include post-COVID conditions um, last Friday, so just a week ago, and they finally have a um, they ha- they now have uh, an area where doctors can and to can go to familiarize themselves with what we're dealing with. And so some of the symptoms are listed, it's been updated, mm-hmm. but yeah, a lot of the medical community um, has been in, in denial and, and met people with, you know, disbelief and judgment and just really been disinterested in listening to these people thinking that it's made up. Um, predominantly women have had in the past um, with diseases such as um, ME-CFS have been told that it's, you know, fibromyalgia, that these are diseases that are all, made up in their minds right. and so they're you know labeled with anxiety and told to take okay. a couple of pills and that they would be better if they just forgot about things yeah so you just answered my question i was about to ask so it would be difficult for some patients maybe many maybe most to get the medical attention and the care they require for the symptoms that you described and the symptoms you described are not inconsequential they are not even getting um to see, receive any kind of specialist care. Um, they're not getting pointed into any kind of direction. They're just being told that this is all in their mind. So it's very difficult, been very difficult for many people to receive any kind of care or understanding. So it's been very tough time for these people. And now finally people are understanding that this is real and that scientists are now starting to research this and take it seriously. Right. 
So, so uh, Susie, we're going to take a break. We'll come back. We'll talk to Jen and to Ruby and to you. But would you just remind us, please, and let our listeners know, because I imagine there are people listening to this program now across the country who are saying, boy, that sounds like me. I had COVID, and now I have these symptoms, and I have these issues. Or they've known for some time that they're long haulers or you know, post-COVID condition sufferers. Where do they go? What, what, what resources are available to them from, from the work you've done? Where can they go to communicate with, with people who are dealing with the same issue so right we have a facebook group it's our group is called covid long haulers support group canada uh long haul covid canada.com and we're a canada's largest online long haulers community with over fourteen thousand one hundred people now uh, fourteen thousand one hundred members and we have um you can go there and, and talk and get peer support from other people who are going mm-hmm. through the same thing. We post all the latest information, um, all the relative studies that are going on uh, across actually global. Um, and so you can sign up for studies. We have uh, researchers that post within our group. We have doctors that come on. Um, and then the children's is, is a different group. Right. Uh, it's the long COVID Kids Canada, and that's a global initiative because we we knew that the kids really needed to have a, an amazing support, and so we have a global community. Canada, it was started out of the UK, then uh, Canada. We decided to go um, to join and collaborate with the UK group called Long okay. COVID Kids. Okay, I'll get um, that. So I'll... now there's Canada, US, Ireland, and Scotland. Sorry. Okay, and I'll get that. I'll get that information from you again before the end of the program. The, the website. Yeah, yeah. Jen and Ruby now. Jen is mom and Ruby is her 11-year-old daughter. Jen, thank you for taking the time. And it was your entire family contracted COVID, right? Correct. I got it first. I'm a first responder and uh, give it to the whole family within uh, a week. And did it manifest itself differently for each member of your family or for, you know, were there two or three versions of it that you got? It did. Um for me, it was pretty much like a really, really bad head cold. Ruby has asthma, so we assumed that if she got it, it would be really bad. Um, our other child and my husband both only ever had a stuffy nose. And that was it? That's it. Now, when did the the uh, long COVID symptoms set in? How quickly after you, um, after you contracted COVID did you start to notice things that weren't right for myself, it was about three weeks. Um, for Ruby, uh, she was actually still in quarantine. She had a big problem that we had to take her to the emergency room for. And the doctors at that point warned us that based on the symptoms that she was having, that she could end up having long COVID. And what has it meant to you, uh, to your life, to your, your ability to live your life on a daily basis? And Ruby, we'll talk to Ruby in a second, but how has it affected her as well? Um, for me being a first responder, I was, I was off of work, off of front lines for about five months. Um, I did manage to get back though. For Ruby, it's been hard cause she's, she's a very, very athletic child. So just the pain and her lungs caused a big problem at the beginning. And then so much joint pain that she had that yeah. it really limited what she could do. Yeah. Uh, Ruby. How are you feeling yeah. right? How are you feeling right now? Good. So t- tell me, please, uh, what happens when when you get not feeling well, when you get the uh, the long COVID? 
What sorts of things happen to you? Um, I get joint pain. Talk closer. I get joint pain. Right. And sometimes I get hiccups. Mm. And your mom told me that you were you're a good athlete. You're a swimmer and a gymnast, and so that causes you problems doing your swimming and your gymnastics, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. What about, uh, you know, seeing your friends and doing what you normally would do as an 11-year-old? Are you okay? Can you do that, or do you find there's you can't do that as much? Um, sometimes I can do it, but sometimes I can't. Yeah. Do you do you know, do you, do you ever know when it's coming, or does it just suddenly happen to you that you're not feeling well? Um, it just suddenly happens. Yeah. So you you have asthma, right? Yeah. Yeah. You and me both. I had asthma as a kid too, so we have something in common. Um. Always look for a common denominator. Jen, there's something that uh, did you want to add something to about uh, Ruby's condition? Um, so one of the, one of the biggest things that was a big concern is she's had a lot of swelling. So, um, rashes, hives, stuff like that, where I had a lot of tachycardia, headaches, vertigo, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Long COVID hit, uh, Ruby very differently. So we ended up having to take her to the hospital because her hands, feet and face swelled up to the point that she couldn't even walk. Um, and that's when the doctors told us about uh, long COVID and that they were expecting that she probably would have it. We were fortunate, though, we got hooked up with sick kids pretty quickly. So she's had really excellent care through sick kids. Do they have any kind of uh, any, any idea for how long it may last? Are there any projections that they are for you uh, and they maybe offer or Ruby or is that just a largely an unknown? It's largely an unknown um, for me. We don't know if it's connected, but when I had uh, my two vaccines, my long COVID symptoms drastically, drastically decreased. Um, For Ruby, she's not old enough yet to get the vaccine. So it's a wait and see game. Yeah. What about socializing for for Ruby? I mean, school starting very soon. Um, So the socializing, it. It's a very big concern because we're very we're very worried if she gets exposed to COVID again. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're fortunate. We live very, very close to the school. So where most kids stay for lunch, she never takes her mask off at school. She comes home for lunch. Um, and with the swim team, the protocols at Swim Ontario has set out are amazing. So there's very little concern with the swimming and anytime she socializes, um, most of her friends are older and have been vaccinated, and it's always outside. So, and I, I imagine, uh, based on what, what I've heard you say, that it's not been a case where this long COVID can be passed on to someone else in your family. You've all four had COVID, but the long COVID exists just with you and Ruby, right? Correct. Um, what they're thinking is it's an overactive immune response but they really, they're still studying it. It's so early on in it. Yeah. Ruby, is there something you want to say, something you want to add uh, about about what you're going through? No. Okay, that's fine. That's, <laughs> that's good. Uh, Susie, give me again, please, because I just realized I was looking at the clock, and I'm not very good at that. I always forget where we are because I, I enjoy the conversation so much. What are the two websites? <laughs> what are the websites that you mentioned? 
Susie? Well, there's the two Facebook groups, COVID Long Hauler Support Group Canada, mm -hmm. and there's Long COVID Kids Canada, the COVID Long Haul Canada.com and longcovidkids.org. That's the website for the global community. And on there, you will find the link to our group. James Akam joins us, former interpreter, Afghan interpreter for the Canadian Armed Forces, now in Canada since 2016. We've talked about that. How are you, James? I'm good, Roy. I'm good. Yeah. But lots of heartache with what you're seeing in Afghanistan. Uh, sorry, I didn't get Say so, lots of heartache with what you're seeing developing in, in Afghanistan now. Well, what I uh, see now these days, uh, uh, things are very tough and, uh, and very scary out there, uh, especially uh, for the people who've been working with the, with the coalition forces uh, uh, out there at the battlefield. Uh, everybody's scared, you know. It's, uh, things are uh, not really good out there. No, they're not. Uh, your wife lost family members to the Taliban, and quite recently, correct? Uh, yes, uh, my my wife brother was uh, uh, been uh, captured by Taliban, and they they killed him uh, uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, which is a really sad. Uh, it is news I I heard from her family, and she's she's uh, yeah. She's crying all the time, and you know it's a it's a very tough situation, especially for me and my family at the moment. Yes, condolences to you, to your wife, to your entire family, on your loss. And unfortunately, James, as you know better than I do, I've seen the reports. You know what's going on. That's uh, happening over and over now, isn't it? It is. It's. Uh, like myself, myself, I, I lost my my parents in 2010. My parents been murdered by Taliban as well, and uh, that's because I've been working with the Canadian forces. And also, my brother was working with the Canadian forces, and uh, and uh, and now it's my my wife's brother. And this is not only happening with us. There there have been a lot of other interpreters that I've been in contact with in the past few years and uh, you know a lot of people they they lost their family members and, and you know it's it's been over and over um th there's no doubt is there what uh what the taliban will do to anyone who worked with canadian or american or other nato forces in afghanistan there's no doubt what they're what they're what they're going to do is there any way uh, that you see this situation changing, becoming changing for the better. Uh, is there any? Do you see any glimmer of hope? Uh, for for I, Afghanistan. I, I mean, at the moment, I for Afghanistan, I don't think if anything got get changed there because Taliban are the same people there back in the days, and everybody knows them. And, and you know, I I don't think so. Yeah. Like myself, for me, there is no hope because they killed my family members, and 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 they are still doing it. If they they are still trading us, and even they are saying, okay, we're we're not gonna say anything to people who've been working, but no, they are just lying because I'm still getting threats from them. 
You're still getting threats from them, even today. Yes, I, I, yes. I, I, like the moment I'm talking to you, I'm, I'm still getting some threats from Taliban. And uh, over the, the social media, or they're calling, or somehow, or and or they're calling my my little brothers. You know, it's I I don't really trust him, I, and I don't really have a hope. So yeah, wow. So they're they're threatening you right here in Canada, where you're living free, and so they they reach out and they threaten you here. Um. James, when you see what's what's happening uh, at the airport, I, I'm, I feel I feel bad asking these questions because it's so hard for you. I know, but I know it's important for you to talk about this. Um, I, I just I, I don't know what to say. I just hope that I keep hoping that with, that there's going to be a political solution and there's going to be some real strength shown and some real commi- real commitment shown by western governments to to take care of the people of of Afghanistan properly. We we just spoke with uh with ambassador Chris Alexander who had been in Afghanistan from 2003 to 2005 and uh and he said, you know, re- regardless of who gets out, there's still 40 to 45 million Afghan people who are going to be in the country. After the airlift ends, or the or the, you know the removal of folks ends and gets get them to safety. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to the Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend. 